I see an ocean in front of me, a sunset with a mix of every orange and red sherbet color you can imagine filling the sky. I see a flock of children running without a single care across the sand that is filled with plastic, fishing line, miscellaneous building parts, and trash. I can smell salt from the water and smoke from the nearby families cooking dinner. I see a group of community activists standing alongside one another beginning to sing and chant to raise the hopes of those around them ready to rebuild their taken community. Where am I? A papadoname banana. Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that uncovers the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and day-to-day lives. I'm Brian. And I'm Chantel. And this week, we're having a unique conversation with a professor and good friend of mine and Brian's, John Ellis. Yeah, John. So over a long and really successful career, John's done a lot of amazing and interesting work across a variety of different topics and areas of interest. But what we're focusing on this week is a specific relationship he's built with a small community in a country called Benin. So you might be wondering, why is this conversation important? And what is it that is bringing our conversation from what seemed like just about layers and space and personal relationships to West Africa? So that's a really fair question. We're interested in talking to John because of his experience in an informal community working in this informal setting. We we really like having that in in kind of the arc of the season because it gives us a new perspective on the cities that we see around us in in the West a lot, which are by definition almost very formal cities the way you change the built environment is through zoning and an approvals boards and getting a permit and all this stuff in in Benin that doesn't exist the relationship between government and day-to-day life in terms of lots of things but also the built environment is is totally different so we like the way that this conversation goes because what John brings to the table is a method of architecture, of approaching architecture that's different from anything that we do here. So what his process involves is less of I'm going to use the internet to research a community and the history of it and I'm going to look up books and newspaper articles and like understand the community and how it formed and like what they need and there it's a lot more of face-to-face interaction talking storytelling understanding need interviewing and seeing what people want and that sounds really cool and maybe a lot of people nowadays like want that here like everybody i think in theory would like to be asked like what they want in their city but in reality that just doesn't happen here yeah and that's not to say that when you work in these areas that there isn't a place for the way that you were describing working Chantel that uses data and history but I think it's underpinned by that kind of very improvisational very personal way uh, of understanding an area understanding the people who are there and kind of building a vision for the future yeah and I think what the big difference is right is here we have an unlimited amount of computers of data a very quick call and response to anything that we need to know and there they don't have that option often you know, if you want to find out something, you have to do the work. You have to go and talk to people. There's no cheaper route, you know, to yeah. like. <laughs> There's no Wikipedia article about a papadonome. Yeah. So now that we're all kind of on the same page about what we're going to be talking about today and why we like it so much, we want to tell you more about John himself. 
So a few years ago, John met Habib Meme, who was a student of his at Wentworth Institute of Technology. And at the time, he reached out to John in hopes to create some sort of connection between Wentworth and his home country, Benin. They agreed to start working together with the goal being focused around some sort of humanitarian work that they were going to create in the area. And over a few years and with many, many flights back and forth, along with many members of communities here and there, they formed this grassroots up group called Latelier de Grios. And I was lucky enough to even go there with John last year as part of a studio. So with all that in mind, we're really excited to be able to have this opportunity to sit down with John and have a conversation to get a better idea around the process of how all of this started and why it's so important. However it is that you want to introduce yeah. yourself, yeah? Um, hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my name is John Stephen Ellis. Um, I'm a, a, a member of the American Institute of Architects and professor of architecture at Wentworth Institute of Technology. Um, I remember 2013, the first night I was there, I was, we were looking out of the window of his parents' house, and I said, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's, that's, that, that's a, a small informal, I don't know if he used the term informal settlement, but he said, that's a, a, a slum or an informal settlement. And I said, can we go there? And he said, yeah, sure. So it was probably maybe 10 families. I mean, it was tiny. Um, but it was right on the ocean, just a block and a half away from his parents' house. So we went there, and immediately people were bringing chairs out for us to listen to music that was happening in a, in a, a gospel, some kind of evangelical gospel group was singing. Mm -hmm. Plus, we could hear it was Ramadan. We could hear the Islamic people that lived in the community praying. And it was like, wow, this is incredible, the way that these people are living together. And, you know, questions came up. Actually, through students in at Wentworth in 2013 uh, to Habib, like, what do your parents think about homeless people living near their house? And Habib's response was, well, they're happy because the people have a place to live. I mean, it was so different than what you would imagine if all of a sudden people started living in the Cambridge Common. Yeah. You know, so there's this acceptance of the fact that everyone deserves a place to live, which, you know, the United Nations has been trying to get the sort of developed world, so to speak, to, yeah. to agree on. So if you could just describe, so the place that you were in. So it was very much like a little piece of a papadodome, just okay. a tiny, tiny fragment of it. And so what it. is, for the sake of visualization, well, what is? First of all, this, this place, when I say it was it was like a papadodome, I mean mm -hmm. the materials, the sort of bricolage nature of using what's around you. You know, I found the, the way they used metal roofing and put rocks on the roof was quite beautiful. I mean, there was something about that. And so then, bricolage meaning? Bricolage means the assembly of, it actually comes from, a, it's a French word that comes from a, 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 the term bricolaire is a person who, who practices bricolage. And it, it's, it, there were pe people called the, the bricolaire who lived in a certain part of France who actually built only using materials that were available to them. So it's and, this idea that like in these communities, people are just using the things that are lying around to build it, it, whatever it is. Right, and often it's about. not from a plan. It's often improvisation. Right. Okay. I mean, Levi-Strauss uh, spoke about this a lot. He wrote a book. He he sort of talks about the, the bricolaire versus the engineer. The mm -hmm. engineer plans things yeah. out, gathers the materials, that, that kind of process, yeah. whereas the bricolaire uses whatever is available to them. Where also, for visualization, would you describe Benin in relation to Africa. It's the bite, it's the bite. The bite, okay. It's the bite of butter. Benin. So Benin is this 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 sort of long yeah. uh, uh, country that goes from the Sahel, which is a sort of in-between landscape of the after the desert, mm -hmm. which is sort of part desert, part, part scrub, um, and it 
it moves from that to to a savanna and then all the way down when it hits the atlantic ocean yeah. you know i i always remember saying to people when I, when i learned of the atlantic ocean as a child i always thought i was looking at europe but standing in in, in benin you're looking at antarctica so I'm going to stop us right there. So for a bit more clarity on Benin, it is located pretty central in Africa, but technically it's on the west coast. But it's tucked right into that bite that John mentioned. So the coast is looking directly at Antarctica. The city that we're located in, Kontanu, is located in the center of that coast, which hugs a decently sized lake kind of right above it, which holds another little community called Ganvier, which is known as the Venice of Africa. Uh, the entire city is located on water with no roads at all. But that's honestly a conversation for another day. Today, we are focused on Papadotome, which is a small informal area that I often pronounce wrong and is also located directly on the ocean facing south. Yeah, and so the area that you, this Papadotome, that yeah, so, spent your time in was... So I asked Habib after that first night, can we go see, there more, is there more of this? And he goes, yeah, there's some really big ones. We went together to Papadotome the next day. And we just, that was the beginning of, we oh, met, yeah, we met this person who became, ended up becoming our guide. I think you probably met him too. Um, he's just an amazing person. And, you know, he would take us to meet various people. We met, eventually we met chiefs, we met religious leaders. We started interviewing people and we thought the best we could do was to create a documentary to, uh, called Learning from a Papadodome, mm -hmm. sort of a play on Venturi's learning from Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Like, what can you learn from a place like this? I think a lot of people, especially from America, think about going there and changing these things to make them better. But it's, it's, it seems as though when you first went to it, you were thinking of it more as like, what can I learn from this specific area? Yeah, and, and also, I mean, because we're, we're architects. Yeah. Um, what can we give to this? You know, what, what, yeah. what, what knowledge base do we have that we can share? Mm -hmm. So I think you asked me about the sort of displacement that happened, the, yeah. the, the removal of part of the neighborhood by the government. I think that's a good uh, segue on how to talk about informal settlement versus informal urbanism. Okay. Because what, what they removed, I would say, was, in, was informal settlement. It's squatters. It's people that don't have land rights. The people who remained are people that have some kind of land rights. They pay some taxes. The taxes mustn't be very much, and I don't understand the ownership there, but they don't have water. They don't have any kind of water. They don't have any, any sewer systems. So no, there's no really, the city hasn't provided them with anything other than a grid. It reorganized them sometime in the, in the 1990s. The government had, there was a change in government about three years ago, and one of the, the proposals that the new government brought out was that they wanted to, to make Benin a tourist destination. Mm. And, um, you know, there's some, some places like Ganvier, which you went to, which already have a bit of a tourist, you know, there are, you'll see people there occasionally. But, but Cotonou, the, the city, is not really much of a, a tourist space. But they saw this peninsula, which was the end of a Papadodome, as being this prime place for building luxury hotels. But what they, what they destroyed was a probably... You know, it's hard to it's hard to quantify these things, but probably a third of the neighborhood was torn down. There was there were other informal economies going on. So f there were, for example, there were boats that would go out and bring lunch to these people. I mean, to sell lunch to these people out at sea. I mean, there were all of these kind of economies which were completely destroyed when that uh, neighborhood was uh, demolished. I think it's interesting to think that, like the big, in the government's view, kind of the big difference 
here is that there were no land rights, right. which to so many people in the U.S. sounds completely insane that right. you wouldn't own or have a right to the place where you live. But I'm sure for the people day to day, that wasn't well, the, 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 an issue. Many of those people, not all of them, but many of those people actually migrated to the other side of, of Papadome. And, and there's a kind of, um, um, you see this often where there are brick wall, uh, concrete or brick walls, they'll use that as a basis and then they'll build up, sort of lean-tos begin to be yeah. built up against it. Yeah. And so now a lot of the Ghanaians that were all, all along the ocean, they can't fish anymore because they're not allowed to go in that area to fish, but they're living in relationship to other people and selling things. And, and so they're, they, the, that squatter neighborhood moved from a very large, uh, very beautiful beautifully organized place to a very tight, narrow kind of corridor now within the, yeah. the yeah, city. And, and I think it's so, and that's another key point, right, that there was, even though in the government's mind, it was, there was nothing, quote unquote, there, or people that could be easily displaced, they had established a well-functioning, yeah, it, a, a cultural yeah. and economic neighborhood which, sorry. that had, you know, it had, it, it had checks and balances, like you said, it, it had people working together, it had people living together, and, and supporting each other in a complete in a very local way and they're they're not just going to disappear because right. some other institution with more power has a view that they need to move because mm. they know like the people still are there they just go somewhere else there is no notion of public space and, no, I, yeah. and I and I think that's based on something you just mentioned, which is the family unit is still seen mm -hmm. as the as the the, the, the main, main organizational structure. There isn't the same notion, and this may be a little bit like the thing I read earlier, which says you know a, a place like a, a Papadodome is a slum to us, but it's not obviously not a slum to the people who live there. Yeah. So. Um, public space or no community. It does exist, but it exists in a way that I don't think we understand. Yeah, I think it's much different. I think in, especially in a place like Boston, it's sort of like we understand, okay, this is my space. And then a school is where I'm going to meet other people right. from that school. And then the park, I'm going to meet strangers. And then there's these divide lines where, I don't know if we think of it as like passing space or like momentary space, but I feel like in Benin, all of the space that's not your immediate claim space sort of becomes this the same it's sort of it is the public realm I it guess, is yeah. yeah and it's not like a defined public space like oh this is a park that we go to no, it's more just like no. everything that's not within the boundaries of what your home is and is it, just this public. it's also anything that that can't bring in some kind of economic yeah because everyone is so poor they have to constantly be engaged in making money somehow yeah. by selling things or making things or I'm curious and I think this is related like a lot of what we talk about is the role of architects to kind of an, the general public whoever you define as public what do you think people thought of the role of their like the physical built environment around them and the people who make that there is no formal sense of because a, a house as you saw right it's a room mm -hmm. and the room occupies you know all the activities Outside is where, because of the, for, the, you know, they're obviously fortunate to have a climate where they can live outside most of the time. So cooking, bathing, um, you know, any kind of facilities that they might have for, for whatever other things that they have to do are there. Yeah. As we've talked about before, the way that traditionally Western architects yeah. come in 
and mm. do work in a place like this. They come in like, hey, I'm going to build this thing for you. And then just, and it might include you or it might not. And then, and I'm going to kind of tell you what you need and then maybe leave. And it's worst, you know. Yeah. Worst. I had been invited to go meet with a nonprofit in Nairobi. And when I, when I realized that I could easily stop in, and visit Mass Design Group and see some of their work, I knew about it. But, you know, it's nothing, it's never the same when you see it. I mean, that architecture has to be, you have to talk to the people who make it, the people who use it to really get a feeling for it. And, you know, I, I always liked what they did, but I never got it the way I, that I did when I was there. So to jump in here real quick, uh, John just mentioned and is about to talk more about Mass Design Group. They're a nonprofit architecture firm founded by a few Harvard students in 2008 to complete a project, the Butaro District Hospital. Since then, they've done a lot of work across Africa mostly, but the world uh, in general, usually in informal and developing areas. Uh, they're super famous. We'll link to more information about them on the blog, but just know they're they're a, a very well-known nonprofit architecture design group. If you if you look at a list of the people who are, are involved with the, the Butaro Hospital, the person who sweeps the ground there is just as important as the doctors. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really mm -hmm. a community, and you know the story about its making is that the people learned how to build as they went along, and now are some of the most skilled craftspeople doing work using materials they would never have used before this volcanic stone. Um, so there was something about that that made me realize how could we do something that would have that kind of effect but in a in a in a very specific place and devoting ourselves just to that place mm -hmm. I, I was with the african design center which was the first group of students that they have in the school that they've started and they're learning the mass design methodology to so that they can go back to wherever build like mass design mass design is not sending them back to open a new mass design office they're sending right. them back with the with information so something about that also thought wait a minute we could do something like this and I said, okay, so what are we going to do? And so we, we dis decided what we would do is focus on the Maison de Jeune, the, the youth center, because it was really the only public place in the yeah. neighborhood. We thought, why don't we focus on something that belongs to everyone? And that's the only place that we knew of. And so the first idea was the two of us would sit together and kind of come up with ideas and then maybe talk to people there. And almost immediately we said, no, that's not that's not going to work. Do you remember when we went there at one point in December and we got together with a bunch of young people? Why don't we try to see if we can start a kind of school? I don't think we use that term, but why don't we see if we can we, we can begin a, a way of interacting with the youth there? The first time we tried to do it, we failed miserably because we hadn't gone through the chiefs. And so <laughs> oh, we met yeah. we met with seven students and then when we were supposed to meet the next Friday and we, we showed up and no one came. Um, and then we called one of them who was one of the chief's son and he was at home and we realized that the chief was keeping him at home. And so at that point I said to Habib, okay, I have a plan. You work with the chiefs and see how you can get students from the Papadodome. And I had already been giving lectures at the, at the American embassy, at the, mm -hmm. at, the, um, at the cultural center. And so I got to meet people like Ben and um, you know other people that were really fantastic. And yeah. so I said to Habib, I'll bring those people in and you bring in students from, uh, young people from the neighborhood, let's see what we can do with it. Right. And that, it was really very improvisational. But what we realized early on was what we needed to do is provide a forum so that they could speak about this place in ways that they've never spoken about it before. Mm -hmm. So what makes you proud of this place? Yeah. Who makes you proud of this place? Like you really have to understand how much language really affects 
everything. Like, and whether it's the way that you talk about yourself or the way that you talk about your space or your community, sure. it can really change yeah. the way that people come together, the way that you feel and like relate to a space. I feel it has so much to do with language. I really like Yeah, it was amazing. That. We spent at least a month having them tell us stories about what was what made them proud and also the history of the place started to come out more and more during these stories mm-hmm. and also who made you proud and then some of the next weeks we asked them to take us to these people we want to meet these people so one was a world champion boxer and then the next the, the next week after that we said take us to a, a place that you're proud of that is really special to you so not only did it help us get to know the neighborhood right. better, but also from a different perspective, but it helped them articulate where they live. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize what we were doing until we were doing it. We were actually giving them sort of agency to, to claim their own place, yeah. to, to speak about it, to, to help us understand it, but to actually yeah, claim it as their own. Like and, the, and also, that little by little, also, the, the, something that they have the power to change. And what's interesting is it's not, you're not saying be proud of this place and be a leader in this place because it's somehow different from you or because, like, you're you're very special or something. It's just uh, take a fresh look at this place that is around you and that you are a part of and it is a part of you and, and look at it. It's a complete just change in perception. Yes, no one ever asked them to think that way before or yeah. to look at it that way. And so that, I guess, is the one thing that we did offer them. Yeah, I think that that, and that's something that I feel like everybody can relate to because I think a lot of what Brian and I have been trying to, you know, accomplish a lot is just asking people to think about space. Yeah. Like, think about what you're embodying and how that affects you and whether or not it makes you feel empowered or suppressed in some way or scared to talk to somebody or motivated to talk to someone or take advantage of your life or take advantage of the space. So I think that the difference between living in a place with ha- which has an informal economy, which operates with informal rules it doesn't doesn't follow the, there's, no, there's no zoning or building codes or any of the kind of standards that we're used to thinking about which you know you'd find in Johannesburg anywhere else in in in, in um in other parts of of, of Cotonou of Benin you know if you were building a house in a in an affluent neighborhood there are setbacks and things like that it's not like that the the, the African world doesn't understand those things so they understand it as well as we do but in an informal a place that I would call informal urbanism, it's it's the the economy, the way people live, it's 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 fluid, and there, it doesn't there aren't rules, mm-hmm. so the people do what it and it's it's necessary to be that way because there there are no jobs there are no yeah. the, the kind of standard things we take for granted like getting a job, you know having insurance this none of that exists. What's, what's interesting and you brought up to me before is like those things sound I think to so many people in this country so like completely foreign right? right that that way of living sounds totally different but there's other parts of there's parts of living in what's on the surface a completely formal city that as you mentioned are informal yeah and there's parts of living in a place like a Papadonome like when the government comes in and and, and asserts its formal power right that are present there it's never it's it 
it's a it's a gradient. Yeah. It's not yeah, a yeah. it's not a this No, I think I think I always use the I think with, with the class last year I might have used this too. There's a, a flower shop in Central Square that puts flowers out on the sidewalk right near the subway stop, which you'd think, you know, it makes it a little tight for movement. Mm -hmm. And they have a little sign that says if your name is you have a free free rose today. And I always feel so happy there because it reminds me of being back in Benin. It really it's yeah. like in the informality of it. And then, you know, I walk for a little bit further and, you know, as much as I admire Maya Lin's building and I look at the, the pizza place and the Greek restaurant and the way that the ground sort of the separation between the world inside the restaurant and the outside world is just there's no relationship whatsoever. Yeah. And I think it makes me think about when if I make architecture in this context again, I, I don't want to make it with that kind of edge. I want to find a way yeah. for that informality to, to find to bring its way out. And, and, you know, I, I had to go all the way to Benin to sort of have that, set that revelation, yeah. in a sense. I don't think I would have saw that flower shop in, in Central Square the way that I see it now mm -hmm. if I hadn't spent time in a Papadodome. And so when I say learning from, you know, informal urbanism, that's one of the, that's a big thing. I wonder if you could, so you talked a little bit earlier about like your first effort in, in a Papadodome was to this change in perception, right, through through narrative and through language and through speaking. What was the, did you make a transition into talking about buildings and, and the built environment? Yeah. And what was that like? Um, so, I mean, I think probably this was influenced a little bit. I don't, I didn't know the curriculum by Mass Design, uh, African Design Center that well, but I know that some of the first things they did were, were work with materials, local materials and, mm -hmm. and experiment with them. And so, um, there was always this plan. It took a while to enact, but it was this idea that if we were to rebuild this youth center, you know, we would do it through through the minds and hearts and hands of the of the students and the and the community. But we need to do something to show that we can accomplish something, or they can accomplish something. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea of painting the walls and transforming it started to happen. But I remember the way we introduced it, I can give you one example. So I tried to explain once, I was saying to the students, so this building is like one block away from the ocean. How, did, how can this place, or it's not really a building, it was really a wall right, surrounding an outside space. How could this space uh, speak to this idea of, of, um, of, of the ocean? And they, they looked at me like kind of funny. And then I said, what about color? And I showed them some images of Louis Barragan and the way that he used color in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And then we walked to the ocean. And I don't know, something was all, everything was right that day. The sky and the ocean were almost the same color. And so there was like this mm -hmm. very, very fine line. And I said, look, look at this. This is amazing. And so this was the inspiration for bringing the first layer of work inside the idea of bringing that 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 color that is so much a part of their environment into mm -hmm. this this site and also it, it was a way to give them a chance to work to, to get to gain some minimal skills but skills but also to show the community outside we're actually doing something for you yeah we're changing this place for you can you talk about how you see the like kind of where the atelier landed but when you left after your 10 months there and and what's happened since well, then and when where you see it yes yeah, sure so um it was funny because i have even i never talked about like what's going to happen when i leave and i think maybe two weeks before i was going to leave i was we we'd had a workshop at the at, uh, with the students and we were back resting you know having a drink at the hotel de Luck. and um and i said habib what's going to happen what are you going to 
and he just looked at me and said, what do you mean what's going to happen? I'm going to keep doing this. Why do you even ask? And it was so, <laughs> but it was so much like everything else that I, like there, the way we communicate, you talked about words and communication mm -hmm. before. He, he just assumed that I could see that there was no way he was going to let this go. And of course he didn't. One of the biggest problems with this space is it's not programmed. So people can rent it and have weddings there and things like that. But there's, someone needs to really think about how to program this space. And if it's really, truly a youth center, then it, someone needs to think about how to program it for activities with, for the, with the yeah. youth. And since if you go to the chiefs, they're not going to tell you what to do. They're not going to say you should do this or that. Um, what Habib did was it's remarkable. He, he began a little bit on his own because he noticed kids doing certain activities. Remember those kids building the drums you mm -hmm. saw the video of? Mm -hmm. So these little children, you know, four years old, five years old, building these little drums. He saw that and thought, maybe I can capitalize on that or work with something like that. So he had little workshops where he would bring the kids to the Maison de Jeune and have someone that really knew how to build these kind of things and work together with them. The intention is to work with the local uh, people who have skills with the young with the, yeah. with the with the atelier de grillo and create. have them do it and so yeah. they'll build it themselves because i think that that winds up resulting in a much more positive outcome because what you're doing right now um and what all of them are doing right now is is i feel like really emphasizing why the space is actually important yeah. and then to be able to get like really hone in on that and then say hey we can actually build something here together to make this space better and then people will be like oh i get it and then they'll want to do it more yeah. i remember when i was interviewing people i would just ask you know like what do you think if i could build you a space what would you want and a lot of people were just like i don't know because they like don't think about needing space to accomplish something right. and i think that introduction is, i mean i think that's one of the gifts you know? we have yeah. Because of our our focus, you know, we spend our lives thinking about these kind of things, and so it's not that we're superior in any way, but we do spend a lot of time thinking about this. And so to be able to offer those kind of perspectives, I mean, to even doing residential work in this community, mm -hmm. you ask people what, what do they want, they don't, they only know what they know. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't spend time thinking beyond that. Yeah. Um, so I think that this was a different form of that same thing. so powerful about it I think is you you're taking the like you said the skills and the way of looking at the world that come with your training and background and meshing it so well with the kind of way of life and and that very improvisational spirit very community you know community centric uh, spirit there and those two things together combine to create this this sum that's greater than their parts. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I really agree. And I think that improvisational way of, of working and, and you you kind of just go with what people have and their ideas and, and what's available is so... That's the one thing that really stands out to me is so different than a lot of the work you see in this country or, yeah. or even in, to be more specific, even in Boston about kind of when people are, oh, I want to develop a community. They, let's have a meeting at this time and let's make a board and let's... Not that those things are so bad, but it's just a totally different way of, yeah. of moving yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a, it was a kind of magic that happened. I mean, it's still happening. Mm. Um, the one thing that I didn't mention was that Habib and I had this plan that we, we and we, this was not the beginning. This was when, by watching and realizing 
these this this is a leader that's a leader you know these people have capacity to to really keep the others going yeah. and keep this alive at some point we need to we need to go someplace else and do this again i wonder if in in kind of a way of to close is that knowing you know you you have all this knowledge about benin and Papandome, but also kind of the larger situation in in sub-saharan africa and kind of across the world where you see places like this going in kind of a very general way knowing that climate change is coming and knowing that the global economy is becoming more interdependent mm-hmm. and migration is happening in increasing rates like you said people are urbanizing more where you see places like this, this yeah. going and changing in i mean I actually you know i i i sense a big big picture from having got to know this place really well. I'm sure going to Kibera in, in Kenya, in Nairobi, was helpful in that regard, too. Um, you know, I was just before you came to talk to me, I was I was looking a little bit at Ai Weiwei's film, Flows, which is such a powerful film about migration and movement. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think uh, we talked a little bit before about uh, uh, some readings that I've done where, you know, it talks about, you know, the favela in Brazil, and it talks about various informal places in in Kenya, uh, Kibera, and it talks about India. But it, the, the, the book also speaks about the fact that we all somehow developed like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it talks about New York City and Brooklyn and Central Park and the various ways that informality played into that. You yeah. know, obviously that's not the case today, but it was the way that cities were formed. Um, and it's not so I think this kind of organic nature of this transformation is something that I never really understood before, and I'm starting to realize that it's 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 the nature of th- that everything is changing, and that um, I said earlier that at some point I, I believe that these kind of places will be the majority of urbanites will be living in these kind of places. It's not it's, it's not a joke, or a, it's 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 based on true statistics uh, from the United Nations, for, for example. Um, what does that mean to us as architects studying in the United States or studying in England or France or whatever? What does that mean to us? If the majority of people in the world live in places like this, what's our relationship to that? Yeah. You know, yeah. we can't, I mean, when, when I, when I, you know, I, I hear stories about what's happening at the Mexican border, it's all part and parcel of the same world we live in. You know, I was thinking about this, this term when people go, not in my neighborhood, you're not going to build that in my neighborhood. This is kind of like funny in a way because it's going to happen. It's going to get <laughs> built in your neighborhood and your neighborhood's going to change. And just because you chose to live there because of the way it was, how can you ever expect that it's going to stay that way forever? It's the nature of the beast, right? The nature of cities, the nature of economics. Um, time, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, the one thing I feel really grateful for is that I'm able to, at this point in my teaching life, to be able to work in this place. And these, not just yeah. the Papadotome, but in this sort of arena, yeah. to be able to deal with this, because I really believe it's some, something that we all need to, 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 to grapple with. And then I, just one more thing about that. You know, if I think about when I was sitting on my computer in my, in my room in Benin, you know, tr- before we started working on the Tidia de Grio full force, I remember getting an invitation to the AIA, AIA um, annual conference, which I've never okay. been to, but I was pretty amazed to see who the three speakers were. Because, you know, it used to be three 
three, well, there was three guys still, but it used to be three established white guys, right? Mm-hmm. So this was Michael Murphy, um, um, Alessandro Alviera, the, the Chilean, I know I didn't pronounce it correctly, Aravena. but Aravena, yeah. And, um, and um, uh, Francis Correa. And so the AIA yeah. is asking these people to open and be their main speakers at a conference in 2016 yeah. or 17. What does that mean? Yeah. yeah, it's a big change. It's yeah. a big change. I still think it's so amazing sitting here thinking about this country that's so far away from where we're like recording this podcast right now has so many qualities of what it is that creates a community and what informs the built environment and what changes the built environment. So many of those qualities of like how people need to be involved, need to be inspired, need to care about their city is the same as like what we're asking people to do here. We're asking people and trying to get people to think about like what's important to them in their environment. I totally agree. It's so beneficial just to, to hear, to get a little insight into what life is like in these places, to hear people's voice, hear their story and, and to learn from them. What Builds Us is brought to you by The Rotation of the Earth. It's the trendy new excuse everyone is using for just being clumsy. Trip on an imaginary object? Fall over doing a simple task? Sound like a physicist and blame it on centripetal force. (laughs) (laughs) Want to share your gripe with the city with us? Send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. DM us or just follow us on Instagram at coalesce.design. And you can check out our website where we have a blog post for every episode, coalescedesign.org. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Brian Sanford and Chantel Trombley. Mixing and editing by Chantel. Mastering and all the music you've heard by our good friend Will Gooding. You can find more music from him at www.thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. I just found it really amusing that we say good friend. His last name is Gooding. It's Gooding. It works so well. What a good Gooding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to John for having this wonderful conversation and to everybody from Apapadoname helping us out. And tune in next week for the penultimate episode of season one. Chantel has a really great conversation with Caroline Light, the head of women's gender and sexuality studies at Harvard University. Yeah. Go. See you then. Bye. <laughs>